Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. History Hit and Assassin's Creed presents Assassins vs. Templars. Real histories of the secret orders. Welcome to the inside of one of history's greatest stories. I'm Matt Lewis, and in this collaboration between Ubisoft and History Hit, we're taking you back to the very beginning. The story of Assassin's Creed is one of deadly rivalry between conflicting ideologies that asks whether peace is found through freedom or control. It began with Assassins and Templars racing to gather the pieces of Eden in the fiery heat of the Near East amidst brutal religious upheaval. We're all Desmond Miles now, and we've found our animus. A team of the best historians working in their fields will unlock the memories of the past for us, lead us through their secrets, and introduce us to some of the real people who inspired the game. It's time to break into the vaults of two of history's most infamous organisations, as we pit the Assassin's Creed against the Templar Order. In this episode, I'm joined by folklorist Juliet Wood to talk about the Templars and the Holy Grail to pick apart where this myth came from and how it might relate to Assassin's Creed. Thank you very much for joining us today, Juliet. You are most welcome. It's very good to have you here. So I guess the first question around the Templars, in the game, they're kind of wrapped in this myth of the Pieces of Eden, which is not dissimilar to the idea of the Holy Grail, which is something I think the Templars have become connected with over the centuries following their existence. But why do you think the Templars are so embedded in myth and mystery within the collective consciousness? It's because they were repressed under very unusual circumstances. And because of the repression, they seem very glamorous, much more glamorous than they were when they were actually Templars, it has to be said. So you have a kind of perfect, not precisely vacuum, but perfect sort of... uh, ambiguity to do all sorts of things with. And of course, that's exactly what's happened to the Templars. And what do you think is it about their story in particular that inspires myth, that kind of attracted that thing? Is it just the way that they fell or is there something about their existence too? I think it's something about their existence. Warrior knights going and defending the Holy Land. However historically odd that may seem, certainly in terms of a narrative, is very, very dramatic because it fits very well into any number of folklore and mythology tropes. So here you have these these men, and they seem, because they're together, because they're fighting, and then because of the odd way in which they were suppressed, they seem somehow to attract our attention. We want to know more. We feel like there must be a story there that we're not seeing. We are convinced there is a story there that we are not seeing. This is part of the problem, I think but also part of the room that gives us all the space to do these kinds of things with them. Oh, absolutely. They're a perfect trope 
for things like fantasy and fantasy games. I mean, you know, if they didn't exist, someone would have invented them. Fortunately, in this case, we actually have something that did exist that we can turn into all sorts of things. Fabulous. We always have to be careful, I think, of blurring the lines, though, between history and the fictional elements of them. This is a problem. And as I say, for someone in my position, so I do a lot of popular culture, I do a lot of folklore, I'm constantly saying that there is a difference between a cognitive history, the events that actually happened, and how we would like them to have happened. And as I say, if you're in the realm of fantasy, that's wonderful. But if you're trying to straddle fantasy and history, you're probably going to fall down a hole. And I guess from a folklore point of view, it's interesting to think about how people like to remember these things, how we build stories around these things, even if we can be aware that it's not the truth. How we try to remember things as a collective is interesting, I think. Well, it is, because, of course, the thing with narratives, which I think are very, very special, is that they follow rules and they end. So you have this nice, neat little included world that you can play around in. When you become lost in it and decide that somehow the narrative is more real than the real, then there can be problems. But it's just such fun to play with. And of course, we've been doing it literally in this case since the dawn of time. I mean, narratives are something we narrate our lives, we narrate our adventures. And then we have these sort of mythic folklore narratives as well. And if we move on to the idea of the Holy Grail, so in the game, as I mentioned, they have the Pieces of Eden, which is described as a relic of a long-forgotten civilization said to possess godlike powers, which isn't all that dissimilar to the Holy Grail. And I think about 21st century depictions, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code kind of ties the Templars and the Grail together. But what was the Grail to medieval people, both physically and spiritually? What did they think it was? They would have known that the Grail was the cup from the Last Supper. They would have known it as one of the relics of the Passion. It was probably less interesting to medieval people than it is to us, because the idea of going to Eucharist was something that really kind of develops in the middle of the Middle Ages, about the 12th, 13th century. It wasn't all that common. Much more popular would have been the relics of the Holy Cross, for example. But you do have this context. Now, if you want to think what possibly did medieval people think about it, I think the best way actually is to look at Mallory who includes into his version of the Arthurian legend, which is one of the last medieval versions, end of the 15th century, this notion of the grail and the Eucharist and this mass that the knights attend and this whole business of sort of questing after some sort of Eucharistic object. If you actually look earlier in the grail romances, the theological aspect of the grail really isn't there even in the ones that say this is the cup of the Last Supper. It's really something magical and mysterious. And you are gifted in being one of the guardians of the grail. And curiously enough, it's that earlier non-theological thing that survives into the link between the Templar and the grail, rather than Mallory's sort of lay understanding of what the grail meant. Fascinating. And were there many competing ideas around of what the Grail was and what it represented, or did people have a fairly defined view of it? They had a fairly defined view of it as part of the Passion, as the cup that was used at the Last Supper when Christ instituted the Eucharist, the Mass, and what we think of as communion, basically. So there wasn't a lot of problem with it then, partly because 
it wasn't as common taking communion as it is now. So I think that wasn't the problem. Within the romances, the grail had different meanings and different forms, but they are a very specific, about half a dozen or so, sort of stories about the grail. So in the game, we see Templars questing for the pieces of Eden in Mallory and writing like that. We see Arthur's knights questing for the Holy Grail. Do we see people actively searching for the Holy Grail throughout history? Not actively searching, but there is a 7th century reference to someone who went to the Holy Land and says he saw, he doesn't call it the Grail, saw the cup of the Last Supper, and he describes it as a silver object. There are a couple of references to it, but there's no sense that people went out looking for it. There are two objects which are brought back from the Crusades. Now, I think one has to think of the context of the Crusades, which basically Europe, let's be blunt about it, lost. And therefore, the idea that you could go and see the relics in the Holy Land, well, you couldn't. So suddenly, an awful lot of these relics started appearing in Europe, and a lot of the legends come around it. And there's one about a Genoese, Guglielmo Embraico, who brings back the Sacro Catino, which is not the grail, but it's the dish that the apostles sort of had the Paschal lamb in. And it's supposed to be made of emerald, and in fact, it's glass, and it becomes part of the Genoese notion of what our history was. And how then do the stories of the Templars and the Holy Grail become entwined? Is there a definite origin to the connection, or is it just something we see emerging slowly? There's a definite origin, not an absolutely clear origin, but you can see the period and the circumstances in which it's developing. And it's basically the very end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th, as part of the reaction against the Enlightenment. The idea that really life is not all that rational, There are sort of spiritual wells of things. And in particular, there was a reaction, the sort of conservative forces, particularly in Catholic countries, really were a bit afraid of this new rationalism, which seems secular and atheist and all sorts of things. So what you found is people sort of looking at the past and creating what we would call medievalism, an interpretation of the past, which basically said, no, sorry, rationalism would be dispersed if only we could find some sort of sacred object. And then not only if only we could find some sort of sacred object, but somebody is hiding this sacred object, trying to prevent us finding it. And of course, the Templars come into this, not immediately directly, but through the Masons, because the Masons were a secular organization, and therefore there was certain antagonism. And so the Masons, with their passwords and their rituals, suddenly had a secret tradition, and suddenly they were in contact with the Templars, who are supposed to be a Gnostic, again, Gnosticism being this kind of mysterious, not so much separate religion, but a version of Christianity. So it's slightly complicated in that it's a reaction to rationalism. It kind of drags first the Masons, and then the Templars, and then the Gnostics. And kind of once you make that connection, you're away, basically, in conspiracy theories. Interesting. So you've got a whole lot of rabbit holes to start diving down as soon as you start making that connection. It's not straightforward, but it's very clear where the period... And it's about the beginning of the 19th century. In fact, I can almost give you a date. About 1818, a man named Hammer Perkstall, who was an Austrian Orientalist, published this book in which he showed in the medieval world all of these sort of images of Templar idols. It was completely subjective and absolutely not the way any modern medievalist would look at it. 
but it really struck a chord, sort of saying, these people are hiding something. They're conspiring against us. They're conspiring against the government and the church. So this is very definitely not a connection that the Templars would have recognised in their day. This is something that's kind of pressed onto them much later. The Templars were long gone by this time. They were a military order. They were not an intellectual order. There wouldn't be a lot of scholars who knew Latin or the sophisticated works of the day. They just weren't that. But of course, if you decide that history is just a kind of surface mirage hiding the truth, then it doesn't actually matter that the Templars weren't intellectuals or they didn't have ships that could sail the Atlantic Ocean or various things. In fact, oddly enough, the fact that the facts don't match the fantasy is almost seen as proof of the fantasy. And it makes it very hard to engage in this. And I guess another critical part of the story within the game is that the Templars continue to exist as this kind of shady organisation, as you mentioned then, perhaps linked to the Masons, all of that kind of thing. They run big corporations. How do you feel about that? Is there any kind of element of truth to the idea that this secret organisation might still exist? I mean, it's a secret, so we don't know if it's a good secret organisation, I guess. This is it. Basically, well, I'd say, well, there's no proof. But of course, if you're a conspiracy theorist, having an academic say there is no proof is basically a reaffirmation of what you thought all along, that everybody is lying to you except those who share the secret. So it's one of these things where there's almost no way of crossing, crossing over unless you accept that this is a fantasy game that we're playing. And it's a wonderful fantasy. One of the things that I find very interesting and attractive is that the Templars are opposed by the assassins. Well, the assassins are the Hashashin, who were just as negatively regarded in the Middle Ages. So here you have two groups, both of which attract terrible reputations, of completely undeserved, it has to be said. And here they are sort of working through this wonderful complex fantasy game. And they both, I think, have that element of mystery to them that nobody really knows what they were about or people guess and try and push ideas on them that may or may not be true. So again, we're doing that essentially with Assassin's Creed, aren't we? We're building a narrative and a world around these groups because there's the mystery. Absolutely. You kind of take this idea that there are two groups who are mysterious, one good, one bad, and you go from there. And there are all sorts of things you can follow. You can look for these objects. I have to say, the pieces of Eden remind me very much of the treasures of the Tuatha de Danann, the Celtic treasures, which include a bowl, a magic bowl, which some people say is the origin of the grail. So all of these kind of bits of culture, and interestingly, cross-culture as well, come together. And it says something about the way we structure stories. We like to structure stories with a purpose somehow, and a purpose that can be completed. I have to say, in the medieval text, the grail is found. Several knights find it, not just one. And then, it, of course, it then disappears at the end. Whereas our modern notion is the grail is always something that we're searching for. It's always disappearing round the corner, up a staircase, into the shadows, whatever, depending on what bit of the fantasy you're in. Why do you think we do that with stories like the Grail? We imagine that there is some secret organisation hiding information from us. Instead of thinking it was lost or it is somewhere, we just haven't found it. Why do we want to construct this idea of a conspiracy around it? We love secrets. 
And we particularly like to think, right, I can find the secrets. I can solve the clues in a way that academics can't. And I actually, I can sympathize with this, even though I don't buy into the conspiracies. I know reading things like Umberto Eco, one of the things that intrigues me is that as I read it, I think, ah, I know what literary work he got that through. So it's kind of reading something and finding clues and feeling very satisfied that you've done that is, I think, really universal. And I think this is what the conspiracy theory is. It's kind of, we are not part of the establishment but we can find out more than they can. And of course, that's very, I think, seductive is the word I would use for that, quite frankly. I think things like Dan Brown's writing, which, you know, his Da Vinci Code kind of plays into a lot of these theories that we're talking about today. Part of his trick is that he makes you as a reader feel quite clever. You feel like you're getting under the skin of the conspiracy, like you're actually finding, he's so clever at leading you through that narrative making you feel like you're the clever one who's solving things. I mean, stuff like the Rosalind Chapel, you know, we don't know anything about that, but he can construct a story that makes it look like this is hiding great stories of the Grail. Actually, we know a lot about the Rosalind Chapel and the background to this. It's just that he sort of ignores that. And here is this very, very fascinating imagery, which plays into our ideas of what the medieval world was like. Although, in fact, it's not what the medieval world was like, essentially. And, of course, once you see sort of these mysterious things and, you know, the Prentice, the Apprentice Pillar, which is probably a pillar named for someone called Prentice, which is so much less interesting, isn't it? And as I say, it's wonderful. I find it very interesting as a medievalist who is old enough to have started studying the medieval period when this kind of fantasy was... Well, we all enjoyed it, but nobody took it seriously. Whereas now, the medieval courses I teach, and I'm by no means the only one, always have an element of medievalism in it. And of course, I think, well, this is really a way to hook students into this stuff. And then, you know, you can show them just how wonderful the medieval material is as compared to some of this modern stuff. So I can see a real change in how we kind of look at the medieval period. Is that helpful to you as a teacher, to lure people in in that kind of way? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it may simply be that I just happen to like fantasies. And so I feel, look, I can share my enthusiasm for this stuff. And I've always liked fantasies. Whereas when I started doing medieval studies, and I wasn't the only one, you kept quiet about that. You kind of read it in your spare time. And my feeling is these fantasies are really, really interesting. And they really allow us to get into an unreal world and to say, what if? And you can, I know this is going to sound a bit pedantic, but you can learn about yourself doing this. I mean, this is what sort of epics were like. This is what quests were like. And as I say, you're also safe because you close the book, turn off the computer, shut your phone, whatever it is you do to finish this. So no, I think this is a really, really good way of sort of showing students that this stuff is not intimidating. It's not old-fashioned. It's not sort of passe. It really has, and again, this is a terrible cliche, it really, really can speak to us. And it can speak to anyone. I was just a little interested as well in the Celtic myths that you mentioned earlier. which It's I'm, the Tuatha de Danon. How do you think that plays into the idea of the Grail myth? 
Does it speak to the fact that we've always liked very much the same stories? We just translate them into new themes. Yes, I think with the Celtic myths, with the stories of the Irish to Arthur de Danon, who are the fairy people, basically, they're supernatural beings. Of course, we've always been fascinated by the Celts. There's something about the way we think of ourselves. There's this fascination with the edges of our lives. So we're fascinated by the East and the Crusades, and we romanticize them. We're fascinated by the Celts. We create this notion of this kind of Celtic world. And, you know, we kind of sit in the middle of Europe, sort of at least sort of aesthetically. And yes, we like to see the Celtic myths are like the Eastern myths. They had magic objects. The Templars are looking for magic objects in the East. So I think we try to bring these things together. And even where you can't say they're the same thing, this pattern of quest and secret and magic object and particularly being worthy to find the magic object. And I think this is what Dan Brown plugs into by allowing his readers to think, oh, aren't I clever? I'm finding these things. You're giving them the same satisfaction or a similar satisfaction to someone who is on a quest. And I think this is the reason. And also this idea of the Templars as sort of secret and the idea of the Celts and particularly the Druid Celts as being a secret. You find these kind of secret organizations, none of which actually exist, nevertheless merge into one another. Raft all these things on, yeah. But I guess that makes the game, um, you know, like a 21st century evolution of those same things. We've got a game here where we jump into the body of Altair back in the Crusades and we play out investigating and trying to find these secrets and gather these pieces together as if we're on a medieval quest. And that obviously still appeals to something in us today. We are on a medieval quest. And as I say, this is one of the things I find fascinating about modern games is that you can participate in an almost very realistic way. I know when I was a child, I thought of myself as going on a quest. I was quite happy to be a knight on horseback. Obviously, I would wear the beautiful medieval dresses. I combined the two. Whereas now, you can turn on the computer and create an avatar exactly the way you want it. So you can actually take it one step out of your imagination and sort of realize it on a screen. And I think that is something which is quite fascinating, even though I don't think I could manage the games particularly well. I reckon you could give it a go, Juliet. I can see you jumping through the streets of Jerusalem. You have. I have, and I've kind of thought, as long as I've got someone with me to sort of say, push that button and do that way, it's okay. But I think I'd rather study the games and appreciate other people's skill than try to do it myself. Can you see the Assassin's Creed games as adding to that folklore tradition that we have? They're picking up similar themes and they're just building it in a slightly different way and immersing us in it in a slightly different way. I quite frankly, would regard it as a folklore phenomenon. Folklore is very dynamic. There's an old-fashioned way of thinking at it as something in the past, something ancient. But in fact, it's very dynamic. And if it isn't dynamic, it dies out. So in many ways, this is it. And a lot of the information that we get, a lot of the folklore information, comes to us through the internet, comes to us through social media. In a sense, this is our oral tradition now. So I certainly think the Assassin's Creed is kind of reformulating these things and clearly hasn't finished, unlike a lot of the fantasy books when they come to the end, you know, the book closes. This has the ability to just keep going and going and going as long as there are people who are willing to play them and as long as there are sort of gamers and programmers willing to devise them. 
And as a medievalist, do you see this as a positive way for people to engage with that past tradition of folklore and storytelling and things like that? I mean, I'm kind of thinking, is it any different from when we moved from manuscripts to movable type printed books that we're now moving to a more interactive presentation on a computer screen? Is it just the next evolution of how we tell stories? Well, I certainly think it is. I have to say, I certainly think that having the manuscript tradition and knowing the manuscript tradition and the movable type and the fact knowing that this is part of an evolution rather than just the only phenomena, that's that I think is important as well. I think internet is one of several phenomena. Print and manuscript are two others. And I think sometimes it's a problem that people tend to kind of think the connections between them, between the three of them are broken, and they aren't. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting way to think about it, because then you can stretch it back 2,000 years from the tradition of manuscripts in the mid-15th century. We get movable type and all of that suddenly changes, and that must have been fairly revolutionary to people then, and they may have sneered at that as we sometimes sneer at the internet and children playing games and things like that today. But it's actually part of the same thing. Yes, I certainly think so. I think one has to be careful not to rate them as if they're sort of, you know, one is better than the other. They are sort of that kind of communication which was suitable for a particular period. And before manuscripts, you also, and you still continue, to have communication which is face-to-face, which is an oral exchange of information. And that, I think, is the one constant that, in a sense, feeds into all of these other phenomena. So if I was to put you on the spot, does the Holy Grail exist and will we ever find it? No and no. (laughs) (laughs) I say that, I think, with a certain level of regret. But no, it doesn't exist. And no, we won't find it. But that's, in a sense, the least interesting thing about the story. I think if we get bogged down in I must find an actual grail, and quite frankly, in the course of my research, I've come across at least eight objects that claim to be the holy grail. And I probably haven't looked all that closely. I could find more. But I think it's this notion, and I think, oddly enough, Wolfram van Eschenbach, in writing Parzival, again, in the 1300s, expresses it very well, because he's not interested in the theological grail. He's interested in the notion of there is this magical object, and to be a guardian of this magical object is, in a sense, the highest calling. And that really is what happens in Parzival. Parzival finds not so much the grail, but he finds his family, who are the guardians of the grail. So it's a very personal story. And that's a bit, oddly enough, that's picked up, I think, picked up later on with the Templars. It's picked up by people like Rudolf Steiner, who sees the Grail as an internal quest, as an initiation, as it were. And then it's picked up by the, let me be polite and say, more popular speculations on the, you know, the hidden Grail. So as I say, no, the Grail doesn't exist, but the concept of the Grail is what's important. And are we missing the important thing isn't finding a cup? that Jesus may have once used. The important thing is the quest and what you can learn. And as you said before, more often than not discover about yourself, that questing for it is the important thing rather than finding it or not finding it. Yes, and you could see this in the the medieval text as well. It's the knights have to find out certain things, answer certain questions, accomplish certain things. And then, of course, the grail, in a sense, presents itself. So it's achieving these sort of 
levels of understanding. And then the Grail sort of says, well, you know, here I am, basically, trivializing it a bit. But I mean, that essentially is what's happening in the romances. And that essentially, I think, is what's happening in some of the modern Grail things as well, even if the language isn't quite as poetic or posh as the romances' languages. And it's not a million miles away from Assassin's Creed. So Altair is on a quest. He's tasked with 10 assassinations and they're trying to find these pieces of Eden to bring them together to prevent, you know, the end of the world as they see it. So it really is just engaging with that same idea that to some extent the quest is important and what you learn on the quest. And he's very much a grail hero in that he starts out not knowing who he is and not knowing what it is he has to do. And I mean, this is certainly the position that uh, Percival finds himself. He doesn't realize that he's related to all of these Grail people. He doesn't realize that he has a mission. He's a rather brash young man who goes crashing through the undergrowth and making all kinds of mistakes. So that kind of hero, what folklorists call the unpromising hero, which is rather a silly name for it because it's a hero with a great deal of promise. He just doesn't know it yet. It's very, very fundamental. And I have to say, I'm using the word hero, and let me point out that it doesn't have to be a man. Absolutely. It's just that there's this character who doesn't know quite how wonderful their potential is. But no, you're absolutely right. I mean, we see Templar sisters and we see female assassins in the game as well. So the game is with you on that, I think. And I guess to put you on the spot with the other side of what we're talking about, do the Templars still exist? Is there a secret organisation out there pulling strings? No, there isn't a secret organisation pulling strings. They exist as a kind of society. I was introduced to a gentleman at one of these conferences who was the last Templar, but as a kind of society and priest rather than a sort of secret thing. Did the secret societies ever exist? Yeah, there were conspiracies and they didn't want to be found out, but that's not quite the same thing as a secret society. But we certainly both fear the notion that there is a secret society pulling the strings. And we also want the notion that there's a secret society pulling the strings because it's not our fault. And just to end on, what do you think as a folklorist and a medievalist, what do you think that tells us about us today, that we both fear and desperately want these things to be true? Well, I think it simply says that we're human. This is part of the sort of human condition that certainly was expressed in the medieval period, but not just in the medieval period. You could go back farther and see the same sort of thing happening. I think what's special about the medieval period is we can still see it around us. So many of our buildings have medieval elements. Things like the Arthurian legend is very popular in children's books. So it kind of seems closer to us than, for example, the ancient past, the Greek or the Roman or the prehistoric past. And I think it's because certainly in the West, certainly in Europe, and in those countries that were sort of colonized by Europeans, you just see a lot of medieval bits and pieces because that's part of the way we kind of presented ourselves. Wonderful. I think it's been fascinating to position the Assassin's Creed game as almost a continuation of millennia of tradition of writing and telling stories and encasing them in these mysteries that we want to solve. It's been great to position Altair as a kind of grail hero who is on the same kind of quest as grail knights and things like that. It's been absolutely wonderful to pick these things apart with you. Thank you very much for joining us, Juliet, and sharing your expertise. You are very welcome. 
Next time on Assassins vs Templars, it's Assassins' deeds throughout history. We'll be picking apart some of the most famous and infamous assassinations and assassination attempts with John Withington. Make sure you're following the Echoes of History podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss it. And there, you can listen to the rest of the series too. This series is a special collaboration between Ubisoft and History Hit, with post-production undertaken by Paradiso Media. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.